Last week, we left off with talking about our center of gravity being outside ourselves. In other words, we are glued, fused, connected to the world of events through our senses. And so our center of gravity, most of our weight is outside rather than inside of ourselves. So that when things happen in life, like your house burns down or your car gets stolen or your child dies or your wife divorces you or your husband divorces you, you are like a ship on the sea without a rudder. You're just blown wherever the events take you. In Indian thought, bondage to maya is, from one angle, bondage to the surrounding objects of sense. You remember maya represents illusion, or maybe you don't remember that, but if you don't remember that, then now you know it, so you can remember it later, maybe. Not only our passion to possess objects is meant, but that everything outside us affects us or has power over us. We're continually distracted, just as a dog is distracted by everything he sees, hears, and smells. If you've ever trained a dog, tried to train a puppy, or tried to train a dog, it's like, oh my God. A leaf falls in Escondido and they bark at it, you know. A butterfly goes by and they, whatever you have them doing, they forget all about it and they go running off to do that, to chase the butterfly. We are as easily distracted. The tumult of sense impressions, the riot of thoughts, the surgings of emotions and imagination, the throngings of desires have nothing central between them to steady them. They're all going on all the time, but there's nothing central in us which would be between them to steady them. So we are being rocked here and there because we have no anchor. We have nothing to rivet us to something solid. We have our houses built on sand. So when everything out there comes at it, it just crumbles. And so we have to build a house on a rock. That's what that parable means. And that's what this is about, building a house on a rock or having something central to steady all of the imaginations, the desires, the surgings of thoughts and impressions. Between that which is pouring in from outside through the senses and that which is going on within, nothing permanent intervenes to subject all these random activities to order, to bring them into alignment and produce a point of consciousness between inner and outer. The self-love disports itself in this chaos, glancing at itself in the mirror of every activity. See, what we don't understand about the self-love is that it is so detrimental to us. We imagine that it is our savior, but the fact is, is it's killing us. And it's leaving us unmoored in an ocean where there's a hurricane or a tsunami. And we're being whipped away, washed away by it almost constantly. Speaking of the chaotic inner state of man, Ospensky remarks that the first aim that an individual can have as regards his own development, is to create in himself a permanent I, to protect himself from continual strivings, moods, and desires which sway him now in one direction and now in another. That's in A New Model of the Universe, page 244. But we must clearly grasp that such a state would mean a new state of the individual. You can't just whip this up in yourself. You can't just say, okay, well, I'm going to have that now. I'm going to do that now. Because it's not going to happen. You can say it all you want. It's not going to happen. You need a new quality of consciousness. It would mean the attainment of a higher degree of reality within. Such a permanent eye could not be a derivative of the self-love. 
which is changing its direction every moment, trying on every costume, as it were, and admiring itself in every possible pose. Somebody was telling me the other day, did you ever know anybody who was always looking in the mirror, always posing in the mirror? I said, oh my God, yeah, my brother, the one who's just 17 months younger than me. He spent more time in front of the mirror than a woman. I mean, putting on her makeup or whatever. He would just stand in front of the mirror and make faces and pose. I couldn't believe it. You know, I'd look at him and I'd go, really, is this really happening? Of course, he was a weird little guy. When we were in high school, he's the one, I would never have imagined this. I found him one day huffing into a Kleenex box and then smelling it to see if his breath smelled because he was going out somewhere. And I just thought, can any, completely self-absorbed. I just couldn't believe it. But seeing is believing, I guess. And there it was. So he's always in front of the mirror, blowing his breath into Kleenex boxes and smelling it to see if his breath smelled or if it was acceptable. And I thought, oh man, that's just way more attention than I need to have on myself. At any rate, I really don't like to talk about it, but he'll never listen to these podcasts. So it's all going to be fine. For everything relating to the self-love and the passion for approval and self-approval can have no stability in itself. If you can see that your desire for approval from other people can have no stability in itself. Your desire for approval from yourself can have no stability in itself. It's changing constantly. It's like boiling water. It's just swirling and bubbling all the time. The creation of a permanent eye must take place somewhere beyond the sphere of self-love. That makes perfect sense. It's got to be outside of the bubbling, boiling water in order to do anything effective. It must be brought into existence through a series of acts which cannot be initiated by self-love and so cannot start from the admiration of oneself. Yet, when people start this work, they start from the admiration of themselves. They start from self-love. doesn't say you can't start from self-love. It just says you're not going to be able to get real I, a state of existence, where real I is, if you're beginning that from self-love. You can start this work from self-love, but sooner or later you're going to have to give it up if you're going to go anywhere in this work. The standpoint of materialism or sensualism cannot provide the right basis from which to start. Only the recognition that there are higher degrees of reality and the emotions that such a recognition can rouse can begin to give the right starting point. For such emotions do not lie in the sphere of the self-love. They would be real emotions. A real emotion is an emotion that has no opposite. We think of love, and you can tell that what we call love is not a real emotion because it has an opposite. Because the person that you love today, you're divorcing tomorrow. The person that you love today, you hate tomorrow, or tonight, or an hour later. In the Christian psychological system, many interesting things are said about love of neighbor, which are usually taken in a sentimental way. That is, from the side of the self-love. But the conscious discrimination of one's neighbor implies an actual development of consciousness. This is so much more difficult than a sentimental feeling of neighborly love. Oh, I love my neighbor because he gave me wine for Christmas, you know. And oh, I love my neighbor because he didn't let his dog come and do whatever he does in my yard. No, that's not what we're talking about. This is, this is a completely different thing. The quality of our ordinary love is so colored by self-love that we're unable to feel the real existence of others, to feel them, save momentarily. We don't know anything about other people except how they touch us, whether they massage us or they're prickly to us, or they just leave us kind of cold. Well, they don't do anything for me one way or the other. So that's it. That's our experience of other people for the most part. 
They're little more than associations with our self-love. In connection with this, Swedenborg says that our self-love demands as its main object a favorable reflection of ourselves and others. What others think of you? A favorable reflection of yourself and others. Well, I, did I tell you about, <laughs> did I ever tell you about the time I knew this guy? <laughs> this is funny. I knew this guy in Florida and, uh, he invited me over to his apartment. He got a new apartment on the beach. Invited me over to his apartment. I go to his apartment. I knock on the door, but he's not there. He's got a friend there. So the friend lets me in. And then the friend asks me a couple of questions, starts asking me questions about the guy. Well, the guy, come to find out later, the guy's hiding in the closet. And he has his friend there. No, this is the true story. This is true. He's hiding in the closet. He has his friend there. And it's all set up to ask me questions about him to see what I had to say. And it's like, and then when we're done, he comes out of the closet. And I'm like, oh my God, is this really happening? Are people really that insecure? Are people really that wound up, wrapped up in their own self-love that they go to such lengths to find a favorable impression with others? And so when I read something like this, I think, well, you have to admit the self-love demands as its main object a favorable reflection of ourselves in others. That is its goal. If we believe this reflection exists, we feel joy. This joy changes to dislike, self-pity, or hate once we imagine the reflection is unfavorable, or if we've hidden in the closet we've found out the reflection is unfavorable, then we don't have to imagine it. We can just come screaming out of the closet like maniacs and, I hate you, whatever. But that's not what happened because I think I never said anything behind his back, well, you know me, I never say anything behind anybody's back that I'm not going to say to their face. If I ever do talk about you behind your back, I'm queuing up for when I meet you. <laughs> I'm just practicing what I'm going to say when I finally come in contact with you. But you can count on it. I will tell you what I think. I don't think there's anybody in this room who suffers from, gee, what does he think of me? Does anybody feel like they're on shaky ground there? No. Nobody feels like they're on shaky ground. You can pretty much count on me to tell you the truth, whether you like it or not. To see another person apart from our subjective notions and images, to realize another person's actual objective existence is exactly one of those momentary and genuine experiences which give us hints of further possible states of consciousness. Everyone has experienced this, where they have really, they really got someone else. I mean, you got them, you know, it's like, I get it. I get who this person is. For then, during one moment, we awaken to entirely new and wonderful forms of experience. But falling back, we forget them because an inferior level of consciousness cannot reproduce the experiences belonging to a higher level. No matter how hard you try, you can't induce the same experience you had when you did a 10-day and you were on like the 10th day of the meditation, and you'd meditated 10 hours a day for 10 days, or 9 days, and then you got to the day when you were like, oh, and now you think back to it, and you go, wow, what was that like? And you know you have to go back to another 10-day to find out, to get back into that state of consciousness. So it's not so much that we forget, but we can't remember. I will connect the self-love with a definite psychological direction. The old conception of two paths that men can follow, as represented originally in the ancient Pythagorean why, is usually interpreted as referring to virtue and vice, as conventionally understood according to period and local custom. 
where the Samian Y directs thy steps to run to virtues narrow, steep, and broadway vice to shun. That's translation by Dryden. This is the superficial explanation, but it may have originally referred to two possible paths of life, one real and one sham. Along the sham direction, let's imagine there lies the great spectacle of life with all its honors and rewards. High school diplomas, college diplomas, PhDs, trophies, Oscars, Emmys, all that stuff. The Music Hall of Fame, Rock and Roll Hall of all that stuff. All those things that, or money, 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 everything that people want. Everything that people go after, the great spectacle of life. Its motive, power, is the gratified and ungratified self-love. It's governing fear, the loss of reputation. Along this path, we all seek. So, just in case you're one of those, well, I don't dribble, I don't care about an Oscar, I don't care about this. You care. Maybe not about that. You care, and you seek that path in some form or another. Audience. That's what you want. Audience. Some people want audience so they show off, they tell jokes, they're the life of every party. Some people want audience so that the wallflower and those, oh, what's that person over there? Maybe we should go talk to him. Oh, cheer him up, blah, 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 blah. You get my drift? Everybody wants an audience. For some people, get their audience by complaining. Some people get their audience by being very positive. Some people get their audience by being very negative. So everybody's got their way of getting audience. And that is what the self-love is about. Usually, we seek open approval. Until you've learned how to hide, until you learn how to be sneaky about it, you seek open approval like children do. But later, you find out that that doesn't always work. So you sneak around the hiding closets. Connected with, it is a very remarkable perpetual motion machine. The great are flattered by the homage of their inferiors, and the inferiors are flattered by the recognition of the great. How many people have you heard about who go to doctors just so that they can be around a doctor? There's nothing wrong with them. They just go because they want the attention of somebody important, and they feel like a doctor is important. I was raised in a different kind of family where my mother was like, don't trust them, the doctors, you know, don't trust them. If you got to go to one, go to one, but don't do it unless you're dying. My father, on the other hand, was a great believer in doctors. He was kind of a hypochondriac, and he was a great believer in doctors and thought you should never speak ill of doctors because they were like one step down from God. So it was perfect. It was a perfect upbringing because I had my father on one side, my mother on the other side, and they're exact polar opposites. So I learned something between the two. Thus, the machinery turns unceasingly in this mutual self-satisfaction. Bernard de Mandeville saw in this machinery the driving force of every form of society. He distinguished this aspect of self-love as self-liking, he called it. It is the passion of self-liking, he says, which is generated in children in the nursery by the chorus of praise which surrounds them. That is not only the foundation of all society, but is the source of honor and shame, through which the appetites of people are held in check, and men and women are made virtuous, though not in any real sense. You know how it goes. How many times have you heard parents or people say to kids, little children, shame on you? Or how many times have you heard, oh, what a good boy? They go to the bathroom, right? Oh, what a good boy. And they praise him for an hour. So he finally develops his bathroom thing where he's got to go to the bathroom because he gets a cookie or a something every time he goes to the bathroom. 
So every time he wants to cook, he goes to the bathroom. Mom, I went to the bathroom. Well, let me see. Oh, so the next thing you know, he's deceptive. He's throwing stuff into the toilet. It just goes on and on and on. There is no end to what we train people, how we train people to be such horrible liars and such great phonies. Through the passion of self-liking, people may imitate all the virtues of the Christian life. He said, indeed, that there are no Christians, which roused the greatest indignation. Boy, I'll bet it did. There are no Christians. Can you imagine to go into a Christian church today and say, none of you are Christians? Well, you don't have to imagine it. I've done it. You call yourselves Christians. I call you pagans, heathens, phonies. They've been inoculated. So they'll never catch the disease. Along this sham path, life is chiefly a dressing up, an emptiness, a make-believe in which we seek to be like something rather than really to be something. Or as Solomon would say, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Emptiness chasing after the wind. It's all emptiness. And he was right, because that is the truth about our lives. We're constantly seeking to be like something rather than really to be something. In this sense, then, no one is really doing what he appears to be doing, and nothing is what it pretends to be. Everything is governed by the complicated reactions of the gratified, the wounded, or the expectant self-love. It's either gratified, or it's wounded, or it's expecting something. Does this sound like you? Because if it doesn't, you haven't been observing yourself. Thus, no one is pure in heart, that is, the emotions are not real. The general cause is that no one has created himself. No one has real existence in himself. We only attain to a fictitious self-existence. And if we are frank with ourselves, which of course we're not going to be, we know that we feel empty or locked in. We do not know what to do. Through the incessant mirror action of the self-love, we're always turned outwards, towards audience, away from the direction of self-existence. So, we are turned outwards not only by our senses and sense-mindedness, which can be said to belong to our natural constitution. I mean, there's not much you can do about that. At least, you have to have it. You can work out of it, but you've got to admit that you've got it first. But also by the infinite psychological ramifications of our self-love. It's a den of snakes, the self-love. It's just this writhing, moving ball of misery. And every time you try and grab it, it bites you. And then there's another 10 over here. It's like a hydra. It's like, it's just miserable. Self-love is the beast that receives the fatal head wound and then comes back to life. Because it doesn't matter how many times you kill self-love, it's coming back. When the self-love is wounded or when we feel our reputation is damaged or lost, we feel depreciated, inferior, or worse, annihilated. Actually, such a state of affairs might be regarded as a starting point for something new. But in life, this doesn't happen. In life, people don't start afresh there. They have to get into some school. They have to get into some place where someone who is awakened a little bit can say to them, Hey, that's a great place to start. Now you see what it's costing you. Now do something about it. It's your self-love. It's your ego. It's your false personality. It's your pride and vanity. Most people are not willing to take that as you can tell by the number of people here. This is never going to be a big group, mainly because if it got big, I'd get rid of them. Because I can only handle so much. I mean, you can imagine what you're like to deal with. Well, wait, wait. You can imagine by looking what these other people... No, you're fine. It's these other people. Look at what I have to put up with with them. See, now you have an idea, because they're looking at you saying the same thing. 
The starting point for some entirely new state of ourself, above what life produces, can never lie along the direction of what is generally approved or applauded, for it will then only administer to the self-love. Which is, of course, the point of danger. For nothing, says Swedenborg, can produce such a brilliant effect upon oneself as the fully gratified self-love. Nothing gives you a psychological orgasm like the fully gratified self-love. For its delight, he says, reaches to every fiber of the body and is felt far more intensely than is the gratification of any of the physical appetites. So also are the effects of wounded self-love equally intense. What has an up has a down. What has a front has a back. If it's going to be that jazzy when your self-love is gratified, trust me, it's going to be just the exact opposite when it's wounded. Swedenborg defines the first step beyond self-love as the love of uses. Anyone who can be simple enough to take real pleasure in what he does and be genuinely interested in what he works at obviously moves a step beyond self-love. This is one of the things where I've got to say that Jess is probably the master of this. Chores. Jess can get out of almost any bad state by going and working. Just go and do some chores. And that is the uses thing. He find a way and it takes you a step outside of yourself and you can absorb yourself in something useful, something productive, and do it well. We must imagine a range of conscious experience lying above that which we ordinarily know. It's hard to imagine, but we've got to. We've got to imagine that there is something of conscious experience above what we ordinarily know. Intervening between it and what we ordinarily know is a discontinuity, a gap. We can't bridge this gap save through lending ourselves to ideas, views, and ways of taking things that ultimately belong to the higher range of conscious experience. In other words, you've got to have some kinds of ideas that come from the conscious circle of humanity or come from someone more conscious or something more conscious. And you use them... What are those things when you're climbing mountains and they go and they they hammered into a rock and then they put a rope in it and then you can pull up with it? Well, there's some kind of anchor things. Huh? Uh, yeah, okay, that's good enough for me. Whatever it is, for volume mountain climbing people, you know what it is, so don't criticize me for not knowing because I've never climbed a mountain. No outer mountain anyway. Trust me when I say that the inner mountain is mountain enough for me. And I'm not making a mountain out of a molehill when it comes to that, because the inner mountain, until you've started to climb it, you don't have a clue. You think Mount Everest is tough? The inner mountain is tougher, a lot tougher. Remaining sensual, the gap is not bridged. Taking things in the ordinary way, retaining our ordinary views and natural ideas, we never attain the potential in us. All systems of religion have this attainment in view, but not understanding the doctrine of potentiality which regards man as a seed, we take all that we class as religion in a moral way, as something merely urging us to be good. You know, I don't even talk to people about religion anymore. I have to say what I have to say. And there are people who have ears and can hear it, and there are people who don't, and I just don't care what they think, because they can't think. Because they're thinking in a box, and they can't get out of the box for whatever reason. They're thinking religion is something moral trying to tell us to be good. And it's like, so not what it is. Although, most religion as it's practiced today in most churches, that's exactly what it is. So I don't blame them. And the more obscure side of religion, the hints that belong to its internal meaning and esoteric side, we usually entirely ignore or contemplate with idle curiosity. 
We certainly see no science in that. But if there be a higher reality of oneself, there must be an actual science of that higher reality of oneself, a science higher than any we know, and one which will comprehend in itself all the ordinary forms of knowing, such as belong to philosophy, art, and the sciences. And having this view in mind, that there is a higher science of man, we can perceive that observation of the following kind probably finds its place just in this higher science. Bome said that we could come into a new reality of our being and perceive everything in a new relation if we can stand still from self-thinking and self-willing and stop the wheel of imagination in the senses. These are plain psychological instructions. But in what sense psychological? Not as we understand psychology today. For what possible meaning can they have for us if we deny the possibility of any qualitative change to man? If there be no higher reality, there's no sense in such instructions, no psychological meaning. And if to obtain a higher reality of oneself, the center of gravity of one's being must be in oneself, then this qualitative change in being will clearly remain impossible as long as we are turned only outwards. He really seems to just be hammering this and hammering this, but you know, it needs to be. Because we're constantly being dragged outside of ourselves, no matter how hard you try. For example, sit down and meditate. And you're constantly being dragged away. You can't stay inside yourself. And if you do, you stay inside yourself in imagination. You're off in some train of thought that bumps into some other train, that bumps into some other train. Next thing you know, you're a thousand miles away from where you're supposed to be. And you don't even know how you got there. We constantly need to be reminded. And we constantly need to remind ourselves. It must not lie outwards in this foreign world, which we can never directly reach, but within, in this invisibility that is the beginning of oneself and can become something, and through which we can reach neighbor. And for this to happen, a qualitative change of standpoint is necessary and a willingness which starts from a conviction that there is something else that is essential for us. For we can only begin from our own willingness and our own conviction. It doesn't do any good for you to have my conviction and my willingness because it's not yours. And until it is yours, and it will never be yours because it's mine, until you have your own willingness and your own conviction, there's no place to start. I believe that as long as we think that the world as displayed to our senses contains all that we need and holds the key to our happiness, then we must always go in the wrong direction. Or if you think that the world has just a couple of things that would make you happy, and trust me, we all do, we must overcome that degree of materialism to begin with, that kind of sensual understanding, and with it also overcome the effect of all those evidences in which the sensual man within us finds so much complacent comfort as, for example, in the outward solidarity of a religious or a political movement. I'm on the right bus. I'm saved. I know where I'm going when I die. Well, I don't know about you, because you're not on the right bus. There are millions, probably billions of people doing that number. Ugh. You know, when you think about it, it's just really good not to be one of them. I mean, not that we're not one of them, but we're not as one of them or in the increase of its organized and outward form. We must understand that we can rest upon no proof, such as the sensual understanding will seek and accept. The extraordinary confusion that arises when we confound the truth of ideas with the truth of the senses must disappear.
We can no longer say that we will believe provided we have the proof, or that we cannot believe because there is no proof. A man's understanding must not stop at that point where things can no longer be satisfactorily demonstrated and proved to everyone. Look, you're never going to prove the existence of God. You're never going to prove the existence of higher emotional or higher intellectual center. You're never going to prove the existence of real I. You're going to have to find it for yourself, and then you won't need proof because you will have found it. But if you're going to wait for proof before you start looking, well, you're going to die. You're going to die like a dog. The greatest initial barrier of all lies in the inability to distinguish between the truth of ideas and the truth of sense. It is a confounding of two orders, of what belongs to the inner man and what belongs to the outer man. And until it is passed, the inner life is rendered sterile because it cannot receive food. Even when a man reads or hears about truth belonging to ideas, he holds it off by arguing that no one really knows or that it can't be proved. Yet the outward turning side of us must first taste life in full, seeing the solution of all things as lying without. As the prodigal son, it must go out into life and experience, tasting from every cup, avoiding, if it can, the cup of bitterness. As prodigal sons, we must first go further and further from source until there awakens in us earlier or later fleeting realizations that the direct approach to outer life cannot give us what we're looking for. Everybody has to come to this sooner or later. It's called coming to yourself. When you realize that the world doesn't have it and you have to come to yourself and you have to begin to look within. The sensual man thinks of the outer as the most familiar and easy, the most satisfying and real, and the most easily reached. Does it not come to be the most foreign and most incomprehensible and in the long run the most unsatisfying? Yes, it does. Can you ever directly understand or possess or reach even the simplest object lying in it? Not really. Certainly you will know you cannot if you already know your invisibility. Karl Barth says, Men suffer because bearing within them an invisible world, they find this unobservable inner world met by the tangible foreign other outer world, desperately visible, dislocated, its fragments jostling one another, yet mightily powerful and strangely menacing and hostile. That was from his commentary on Romans, page 306, Oxford University Press. We are indeed in such a desperately foreign world, in such a strange land, that we may well ask ourselves how it has ever been possible to believe that we have been mechanically evolved through countless millions of years solely in order to be directly in it and of it. Look, all of these years of evolution from pond scum to where we are now, the pinnacle of humanity, millions of years. Millions and millions of years of evolution to be stuck in this spider web of the senses, to be stuck in this web that everything you touch sticks there too. Every time you struggle, it sticks there too. And then when you struggle, it brings the spiders who start sucking your life. And what are the spiders that start sucking your life? Negative emotions. What else? Oh, it's negative emotions. Good man. Negative emotions are spiders. They wrap you up and then they suck the life out of you. And we like them. We love them. That's what's really weird. Because when they get us, they inject us with something that makes us feel powerful while they're draining us. That makes us feel in control while they're draining us. That makes us feel like we're on top now and we can protect ourselves from the big bad world and all those people in it. Whew. What a trap. 
If the doctrine of potentiality is true and man is incomplete, but capable of reaching further states of himself, any psychological system that doesn't take these possibilities into consideration must be inadequate. Actually, it must be negative in character. It will not be enough to take known life alone. A positive psychological system, as that inherent in Christianity, oh, I can hear the crying now. Christianity, why do you want to say that? Because Gurdjieff said, this is esoteric Christianity. Now, why people in fourth way don't want to get that is beyond my comprehension. He was very clear about it, but he said, if you will, this is esoteric Christianity. But the problem is, is that people don't will, because that takes effort. You would have to get through all of your preconceived notions and all of your prejudices and all of your habits and all of your aversions and all of your... Huh? objections and considerations, and it takes will. It takes a real act of will, and we're too busy preening in front of the self-love mirror of what great intellects we have because we can understand this work, and we're not like those dumb people in the churches. So he says a positive psychological system as that inherent in Christianity must teach that man can be different and be based upon the view, the actual knowledge, that man is capable of a very definite kind of development that mere response to known life does not give, and that some definite transformation can take place in him. The ideas belonging to such a system will not, of course, be understandable in any ordinary way. They will not be about the phenomenal world, about matters of sense, about the third term. And this is why Jesus taught in parables, figures, allegories, because it's impossible to teach sense based man with anything other than sense-based things that eventually will lead him to something inside if he hangs on and if he wants it badly enough. They will not be about the phenomenal world, about matters of sense, about the third term, nor will such ideas be verifiable through historical considerations which are of minor importance. One does not prove the truth of an idea by demonstrating that its founder lived. Whether Jesus lived or not, Here's a news flash. It doesn't change the efficacy of the ideas. Not a bit. Not a bit. So don't bother arguing that. Whether Buddha lived or not, don't bother arguing that. The ideas stand on their own. Whether the person who spoke them lived or not doesn't have anything to do with anything. The evidence of its truth can only lie in a man's own experience of it when it enters into him. Such ideas cannot be compared to ordinary scientific ideas. We shall not find them in books on the physical nature of the universe. And unless we can distinguish between ideas of this kind and ordinary or scientific ideas, we're never going to be able to give them any germinating place in our mind or perhaps never even grasp what they refer to. That enough? Yeah, me too. I think this is a good place to stop. <laughs> well, it's a lot, you know. I mean, he, the, the thing is, well, Connie glazes over constantly. You know, I, I get two sentences in and she's like, huh? What? She has this thing, like some people are about religion. She is that way about intellectual things. Anything that you have to think about, it's like, okay, that's enough. I've had to think too long. Unless it's something she wants to think about. Now, who else is like that? Just wave your hand. Yes, all the hands are waving, except Diana. She's just laughing because she can't get her hand from out from under the blanket to wave it. But yeah, I mean, let's face it. We all have something that puts us to sleep. And what that is, here's what puts you to sleep. Effort. If you've got to make effort, if you've got to wake up, it's like, oh, please, can I wake up next week? Can I wake up tomorrow? Can't you just give me the, what is it, the blue pill? Yes. Can't you just give me the blue pill? I just want to take the blue pill.
Truth is everything.